0: Okay, so I've got a riddle for you. I can't be saved, though people try. When fun is had, they say I fly. They say I'm money. I can be spent, I can be wasted, but never lent. Any guesses? I'm Roma Agrawal, and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. And today we're going to expand your understanding of one of the most fundamental organizing principles in all of humanity. Time, 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 time. time. My guest is Dr. Rebecca Struthers, an expert watchmaker and horologist. Time really is measuring the events in the
1: universe that are completely outside of our control. And yet we've created these tiny little machines that we can keep in our pocket or wear on our wrists that are almost our way of trying to get to grips with
0: that. She runs her own specialist watchmaking business, Struthers Watchmakers, and has written a fascinating book called Hands of Time about the history of time telling.
1: It all speaks to this innate human urge we have to understand the world around us. It gives us a sense of meaning. Maybe that's just me.
0: (laughs) In this episode, we're going to take a journey through time itself. From ancient time-telling methods, where we followed cues from the moon, sun and natural world, to the miracle of engineering that is the mechanical clock, which revolutionized how we see ourselves and the world around us. This is a silver
1: pocket watch made in 1885 and it's got a, a 16 two beat train, which is a number of ticks per hour. I'll see if we can hear it.
0: So Rebecca, you said you fell into watchmaking. Can you tell us a little bit about your story of how you got to where you are today? By accident, <laughs> in many ways. So
1: um, yeah, right. I got into a grammar school. It was a very academic school. I gather this is quite a similar experience. You taught science and art are two very different subjects Mm -hmm. and you can have a successful career studying the sciences and mathematics or, you know, the the arts really are just as a hobby. No one has a successful job as an artist. So we were really pushed in this direction and I took pure sciences for my A-levels and I just ended up feeling really lost. I've always been really creative I missed that I really missed that and I really struggled and I actually I, I dropped out of school <laughs> and uh, ran away to art school which was pretty frowned upon at the time um, I remember <laughs> well, I remember getting my AS results from one of my teachers saying are you sure this is a good idea Rebecca you're actually doing quite well like that's going to be it for me now but I did I, I ran away to art school and I started studying jewellery and silversmithing so I started off doing um, a BTEC national, which is really practical, really hands on. So it was all like at the bench, foundation skills, how to use a piercing saw, how to use a drill, how to file. And I started developing just organically this interest in making really basic pieces of jewelry that could move. So whether it was articulation or automata. And it was doing that that um, some of my work was spotted at an exhibition, one of the university exhibitions, by some of the watchmaking students. who came over and were like, oh, that's interesting, Rebecca. Have you ever thought about watchmaking? And I was like, no. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. I thought like watchmaking was changing batteries and things. I didn't know that was a career. And, um, yeah, they invited me up to their workshop and I just set foot through the door and thought, yeah, this is it. This is what I want you to do in left. my life. Yeah, and they couldn't get rid of me. So, <laughs> and one of them literally couldn't get rid of me because one of them is now my husband. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's excellent. And so, you and your husband have your own business. So, can you tell us a bit about that and what you do? Yeah, so that started in two
1: thousand and twelve, um, and we were living in London at the time. And we'd worked as a well, we've worked a few different jobs. But Craig was a restorer, and I was buying and selling watches. And I had a really bad day at work. I was really struggling and um I had a bit of a well, a bit of a breakdown really and um Craig just said, "I, I can't see you like this let's set up our own company we'll do our own thing." he'd done it briefly before so we went to the bank to get A tiny, tiny bank loan and set up our own business, moved back to Birmingham, got married and set up a workshop in the same month and started off just restoring watches. And then slowly you kind of get to the point you've made virtually every component for someone else's watch. So we thought, Oh, let's see how far we can take this and start making parts for our own watches. And yeah, we did. It took six years, but we got there in the end. We still do some restoration because it's such an important part of our design process. We're great believers that the most beautiful designs have already been made. So we kind of look back to look forwards, but we like to combine them. So like this recent watch was inspired by something that was made in the 1880s with bronze alloys that were developed for Formula One. So you kind of got this mad fusion of new and old and yeah, it's fun.
0: (laughs) I love the idea of using all this kind of cutting edge material and then using mechanism styles from a century ago. It sounds fascinating. So, So the business is Struthers Watchmakers and you've also written an incredible book called Hands of Time. So can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your book? Yeah, sure. It's a history of
1: time told through the objects we invented to measure it. And it takes us back 40,000 years to the first possible timekeeper, which was a carved bone that might be an early lunar calendar right the way through to atomic time and time on Mars.
0: Rebecca, I have a beautiful clock, which is made out of concrete, like the actual dial. And the mechanism that was attached to that basically for the battery, stopped working. And I've taken that apart, but not put on a new one. So I'm going to have to invite you down to London just to sort out this ridiculous thing that's lying on my desk and has been for months. Yeah, I think you can do it. Persevere. Send me some (laughs) photos. I don't have the right tools. (laughs) This is my problem. (laughs) I don't have the right tools. And I'm going to come to tools because I know that you love your tools. Can you tell me about why you have various German characters in your workshop were they german or am i making that up a bit of everything yeah
1: so if, a bit yeah. of everyone yeah so this all came out when we first set up with that teeny tiny bank loan um which is it was a terrible idea in retrospect but we we survived and um <laughs> yeah we we couldn't really afford um state-of-the-art tools or we just couldn't so um like we use something an eight millimeter lathe eight millimeter referring to the size of the collet that takes the work in the headstock probably about 30 grand now. And this business zone was 15 that had to get Lucky. us everything, the property, <laughs> like the workbenches, the hand tools, everything. So it wasn't an option. And because um, we're both magpies and like fixing things, we just hunted on like eBay, people's garages, shed floors, like for boxes, of tools in bits and found these beautiful old machines and started restoring them and putting them together so we could then use them to restore the watches. We've got Helga and Heidi, who are a pair of East German lathes. We've got Maus, spelled M-A-U-S, who's a six millimetre lorch. She's also German. She's tiny, hence Maus. Albert, who's also German. He's a Wolfian milling machine. We've got George. He's British. He's an IME drill. Adam, who's, who's actually, he's German, but he was named after the friend who who of gave him to us. That's another thing we do. We name a few. Machines after people who've gifted to them, or Barney is named after a dog.
0: Oh, that's so sweet. So, you've got all these tools and you're making watches by hand, and you've, you've talked about how you've made almost every component of a watch by hand. Um, why don't you use software operated machines to do the manufacturing now that that's a possibility? Oh, wow. That would be the sensible way of doing things. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, we definitely do things the long way around. And that, I mean, that's the way most watches are made. And six years later, we know why. Everything takes so much longer. And yeah, like your research and development, your prototyping, it just everything is done manually, but we love it. We love getting our hands dirty for us. I think if we weren't doing it this way, we'd just lose the passion for it. And as long as we have enough clients who are interested and and don't mind waiting sometimes years for us to make them watches, then we love making them this way and we wouldn't want
0: to change that. Is this kind of watchmaking a bit of a dying art? You know, are we starting to lose these kind of skills? Um, Well, it was categorized
1: or has been categorized as a critically endangered skill in the UK. And even in Switzerland, where we now consider the home of the world's watchmaking industry, they're losing a lot of these really traditional skills as well. Saying that, there is a massive resurgence in interest. So we call it independent watchmaking. And the scene for independent watchmaking is the most successful it's been really probably in well, since the advent of the big brands, so over 100 years now. But it's going to take time, I think, for the skills to hopefully catch up again. And we've lost a lot of skills as well because they've died out and not been passed on and will take time
0: to be revived. So can you take me back now and tell me what happened before mechanical timekeeping? How did our ancestors tell the time?
1: The evidence that we have, and this is all, it's all, based on what we can kind of piece together because obviously this is pre-written language so we have no record, we'll never know for sure. What we believe is that timekeeping started off being something quite close and personal to us. So we were tracking things that were relevant to our day-to-day existence and then this expanded out to longer and longer periods of time. So lunar calendars would have been particularly important in tracking female reproductive cycles and planning pregnancy and childbirth. This is really important to our ancestors because as soon as we could start tracking time over duration so counting months and and years we could count seasons predict seasonal change and we could start to farm and that was a huge turning point for civilization because you can organize farming and we no longer have to hunt and gather to feed ourselves for the day we can busy ourselves building cities and starting communities and civilizations and all the wonderful things that went with that and as we get into the age of civilization things like trade become very important as well so organizing ourselves so this is where we get into timekeeping devices to help us divide the day into smaller and smaller parcels of time starting with sundials Um, the earliest example of a sundial that we would recognize today is about three and a half thousand years old from ancient Egypt also clepsydra water clocks started to be used at a sort of time. One of the incredible things that I think about this is the way that they started to crop up all around the world at very similar times. So this is clearly a universal human need to start understanding the passage of time around, around this era. So you can't explain all of it by saying, oh, well, people must
0: have seen something. It clearly ran deeper than that. And that's a really interesting point. So what are some of the stark differences in the way cultures perceive or record time that you've found? There are so many different ways of interpreting
1: time and the passage of time. It is as unique as we are and hugely diverse. So you get cultural differences in whether or not we place more emphasis on the past, present, or future, the way we record events. So using things like event-based timekeeping, still very culturally important, to understand our placement based on our past as opposed to kind of the Western looking towards our future to dictate to us what we should be doing next and looking at forward goals to actually understand who you are and where you came from is another huge cultural difference that we have. In fact, I um, spoke to a philosopher who said that there are so many different ways of telling the time. We need timekeepers because it would just be too much for our brains to handle. It's just too much for us to deal with.
0: This is why we've all developed our own little ways. So can you tell us a little bit about the engineering that got us from, you know, I guess the very first timepieces that we created to where we are today. I mean, the big step forward was, was in
1: 1088 with Su Song's hybrid hydromechanical clock, and this took clepsydras that had already existed, so using water as a, a power source effectively to track the passage of time, and introduced something mechanical that we call an escapement. Now, the escapement is the series of components that still exist to this day in virtually every mechanical watch on clock that alternately checks and releases the power from the power source.
0: So just to give an example of that, if I'm thinking of like a church clock tower, for example, they often had a heavy weight Mm -hmm. that hung from them. And if we just let that weight fall under gravity, it would fall from the top of the clock tower to the bottom in, in seconds, right? Depending on how high it was. But what your escapement is doing is saying, hold on, I'm going to regulate how quickly this weight is descending. So that's, that's a form of escapement, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's the bit that ticks so 1088 mm-hmm. was the f- world's first TikTok that worked in countries where you had better, should we say, temperatures, a better climate, where water so would not freeze. the UK, yeah. <laughs> so Europe was a little less consistent in the. Uh, Ideal climate. And this is where fully mechanical clocks come into the forefront. And this is during the latter half of the 14th century. One of the oldest examples is at Salisbury Cathedral. As you say, these were driven by huge weights. So instead of water as the power source, gravity was the power source, but they still had an escapement. So it's just kind of moving along in this process of taking it to the next level of technology to better suit the environment that we needed timekeepers in.
0: So the accuracy and the technology of the escapements, the springs that we use, basically there was a kind of exponential improvement in all of this. And that's taken us across a number of centuries and decades. But then I I hear about atomic time. So can you explain to us what that means? Yeah. So this is time kept by the vibrations of a
1: cesium asset mode <laughs> it's it's way beyond what i normally do as well so this isn't my my specialist specialist area but it's incredibly accurate which is really important for the modern world so no mechanical timekeeper i mean no mechanical timekeeper will ever be good as a quartz no quartz will ever be as good as atomic time and that is now the world standard for time so if we have a smartphone or a laptop. That's where the time's coming from, and it's essential for everything from media, radio broadcasts, and um, financial transactions. All rely on it, and this is all operated on atomic time, which is accurate to within a second in hundreds of thousands
0: of years. And the the, the accuracy or the precision of the timekeeping comes from the number of beats per second. Can you just give us a bit of an idea? If you compare the kind of mechanical watches that you're making by hand to a quartz crystal to an atomic clock? So, in mechanical
1: timekeepers, so that the pocket watch with a 16 two beat train, that's a pretty slow train. We don't make them at that speed normally now. Um, typically, they have a beat of sort of 1800 to 20, um, six hundred beats per hour. The fastest beat, um, mechanical watches have a beat of over um, 100,000 and that's measured in hertz then. Quartz,
0: I don't know. I don't know the vibration of quartz. Really fast. And <laughs> But we're talking really, about really really like well. tens of thousands a second as yeah. opposed to kind of uh, tens of thousands an, an hour. So there's a, there's like orders of magnitude difference between that technology versus an atomic clock.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing with time. And another kind of interesting parallel between time keepers is time speeds up and our technological advance speeds up with time and our experience of it in the modern world as well. So if you look back to the earliest, say, watches, portable timekeepers you didn't have a minute hand on them they just had an hour hand Mm. and part of that has been argued because they weren't accurate enough to warrant a minute hand but the other theory behind it is that we didn't need to know the time more accurately than to within roughly around the hour at this point in our history because before trains and planes and yeah accurate working hours and things we just we didn't need to know things that accurately things were a lot more relaxed all went wrong with the industrial revolution. That's where
0: I blame. (laughs) I mean, a lot of things went wrong with the industrial revolution. (laughs) We could have another podcast on (laughs) on that topic. So, I mean, what do you make of the fact that people like me, all, all of us with our mobile phones are checking the time multiple times an hour, I guess? Yeah, it's
1: so easy to do now. Time has consumed our lives in a way that Would have, I think, blown our ancestors' minds. So the first timekeepers were there to help us live a better life, to help us understand things like farming, of growing food, of of us not starving and living a more comfortable and happier existence. And yet it's turned into something completely different where what used to help us now dictates to us.
0: No, I agree. I I think we're almost, we've become so beholden to time. And we're so, like, time controls us rather than the other way around, I feel. Mm. And with anxiety and mental health and all of these sorts of things, you know, I I really wonder how much this kind of obsessive timekeeping plays into that. So now that atomic clocks are allowing us to keep a second accuracy over hundreds of thousands of years, do we need more precision and accuracy in timekeeping like what is next in the engineering of timekeeping
1: i actually don't know how much more accurate we can get it the big change i see coming in timekeeping is our understanding of time itself our understanding of time as humans we are earth based creatures um, living around the circadian rhythm of 24 hours a day um obviously that's only relevant on earth So, as we start to adventure further out into space and onto other planets or or the moon, our understanding of time and the way we experience it will cease to hold meaning. And, you know, how do we keep in time contact with a a spaceship that's out in deep space with people on it? That is going to be interesting. I mean, the Martian day is quite similar to ours, so that shouldn't be too bad. The lunar day is a month long as well as their months been mm. a month long. So that will be a different experience.
0: So are the frontiers with time related to engineering now going to be not so much about the timekeeping itself, but how we adapt to these different environments I think so. I did
1: speak to an atomic physicist about this who said we're going to reach a limit of how accurately we can tell time. I mean, you never know. They probably said that 100 years ago and look at us now. So who knows? But yeah, I mean, how we're going to comprehend time. That was revolutionary even when it came to speeding up things like communications between Europe and the U.S., or the Far East, you know, that, that completely, it made the world feel smaller when we could suddenly pick up the phone to someone. How we'll maintain those relationships the further away from our home we travel. Yeah, sci-fi. The, the answer is in sci-fi.
0: <laughs> and if you wanted our listeners to kind of come away with this conversation and notice one new thing about time, what would that be? I
1: think a lot of us might have lost contact with the amount that we can actually tell about the time without looking at our watches. And it's actually a really lovely process when you start to understand how you can look at the position of the sun to give you an approximate time of day, if you can see the sun depending on your weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but telling things like north and south from the moss on a tree or, you know, being, uh, watching seasonal change, something we really lose track of. I was born and raised in Birmingham, only lived in Birmingham and London, then moved out to the country a few years ago. And seeing seasonal change is such a magical thing. You can tell sometimes within a week whether or not migratory animals are arriving. You can get an idea of what time it is. And it's so lovely reconnecting, going back to basics and taking a bit more note of
0: nature's cues for us rather than having to look at our watches all the time. So that's the natural stuff. What would the takeaway be for engineers and and engineering
1: oh well i love machines so machines are a wonderful thing i think we obviously everything has gone much more the way of tech so computers and yeah like quartz watches atomic time but there's so much beauty in machinery i think it's easy to forget that when things are so kind of cnc produced that actually making making machines by hand as well or or partially by hand or finishing them by hand they're very beautiful creations and again this kind of like it's an object that humans have invented just because we love inventing things and there's a real pleasure
0: in that so patterns in nature and beauty and engineering yeah (laughs) I think that's I think that's wonderful it is always such a joy speaking to Rebecca and I was lucky enough to actually visit her workshop and see her in action a few years ago when I was researching my own book and it really fascinates me how she spends hours and hours of every day, day after day, looking at these really, really tiny, tiny things, you know, looking through magnifying glasses and her Lupe lens, all because of the fascination that humans have to tell the time, this instinct to want to record it really accurately and precisely. And also, when I look at her workshop, I'm looking at all these incredible tools and machines that she's using. And it's very clear that engineering has played such a crucial role in creating the watches and clocks that have laid the foundations for modern civilization as we know it. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, Roma Agrawal. It was produced by Jude Shapiro. Look out for future episodes with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists, and thinkers. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. See you next time.